has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon, and it falls completely in the TMI you know, category. But when we were doing the uh, promo, the sermon bumper, I wrote the scripts for them. But with the voiceovers, they never did sound just right. And I kept saying, well, it needs to sound like this. And so Dan Kubish, who's head of our creative team, he said, well, Mark, why don't you read the, why don't you read the, the, the voiceover yourself? And so I said, oh, I don't know if I want to do that or not, and finally talked me into it. So I have to listen to that every week. <laughs> and I'll tell you what I've discovered is, although I've been here in Kansas for 33 years as pastor here, I still have a horrible Texas accent. And you can really tell it on the word power. It's supposed to be power, isn't it? But power, power. So I have to hear that. And I think all these years in Kansas, I'm still not right with God. So uh, <laughs> actually, let's talk about that in a serious sense, being right with God. I want you to think about a question. And I'll think about it as first person, and you can think about it too. Can God forgive me? Can God forgive me? You know, if that's not an issue for you, it's probably because you don't think you're going to die anytime soon. I mean, the thing of it is, if you don't think you're going to die right now, then you can think about where you're going to lunch and what you're going to buy next week or work tomorrow. But the thing of it is, you're all going to, we're all going to face that question, can God forgive me? On the other hand, it can be something that you think about all the time. If you're a sensitive person, you're sensitive to the fact that you're a flawed person, as all of us are, and you're sensitive to the reality that God is a perfect God, it could be something you think about pretty often. Can God forgive me? And when it, when it does become a real issue for you, maybe when you come face to face with who you are and the negativity of the faults and failures that you have, as I do with my faults and failures, it could be that it will be all that you can think about. It may consume you. I haven't gotten to see the movie yet about Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Mary Alice got to see it. I'm looking forward to watching it. I've been waiting for it to come out. I mean, Fred Rogers, one of the most decent people that I guess our nation has ever had. I mean, he, he gave his whole life to ministering to kids. And I have so much respect for the way he lived his life. And yet, according to the movie, when Fred Rogers was dying, he said to his wife, am I a sheep? Well, I knew what he meant by that. Jesus told a story one time in which he said, at the judgment, they, all, all of us will stand before Jesus and he will judge everyone. And on the right hand will be the sheep, those who will go to heaven. On the left hand will be the goats, those who are consigned to hell for eternity. And, and this very fine man whom I think most of us would look up to and have respect for. I mean, he's the kind of guy people like, whether they're conservative or liberal or Democrat or Republican or socialist or wherever one comes from, it would be hard not to like Fred Rogers. And yet this guy on his deathbed asked his wife, do you think I'm a sheep? This question, can God forgive me, is a huge question. And one of the reasons it is is because we know what we have been hiding from everyone else. And I don't mean that in the wrong way. I'm not suggesting that we're hypocrites. I mean, a person would be foolish to hang all of his dirty laundry on the line for everybody to see. 
But each of us knows things about ourselves. I know things about myself that I would never want anyone to know. And you know things about yourself that you don't want anyone to ever know. But because we do know those things, we tend to think about God being perfect and wonder, can God forgive me? You know those things that you could never get on top of. You've, you've won some victories in your life. There, there are problems that you dealt with. There are wrong behaviors that you had in your life, but you've gotten, you've gotten victory over those now. But there's still stuff in your life and my life that we just can't seem to ever get on top of. We, we know the times that we told God we would quit and we would never do it again, sometimes with tears. When we did something wrong and we prayed and we said, God, I'll never do that again, only to find yourself 72 hours later doing the same thing over again. Or we promised to start doing things that we've never started doing. And I think whether we, whether we verbalize it or it's tacit, there's this statement that we have in our heads that goes something like this. I believe God can forgive blank, but I'm not sure he can forgive blank. I think we feel that. I mean, you may feel that as someone who's not spiritual at all. On the other hand, you may be a longtime follower of Jesus Christ, and you know the promises of God, and you know the word of God, and you claim those. And, and if someone were to back you into the corner and say, you know, if someone were to ask, has God forgiven you? You would say, yeah, based on the scriptures, I, I, I know he has forgiven me. But still, we have that, with, that thing within us, that feeling that says, if God is perfectly holy and I'm a flawed person, can God forgive me? I mean, forgiveness is a miracle, isn't it? It's not just Christians who have asked that question. Socrates said to Plato when he was teaching Plato, he said, it may be that the divinity can forgive sin, but I don't see how. Well, we're going to talk about that today. In fact, our whole talk is going to be about this question, can God forgive me? Because I want you to know for sure. I mean, the thing of it is, we don't know when we're going to face God. I mean, you can be... 80 years old and live another 20 years. On the other hand, you can be 18 years old and you may face God in 24 hours. So I want you to know, and, and here's the thing. We live in a world today, and this is even in American Christianity, where there's such a chicken soup for the soul. I'm not denigrating that. But there's such a chicken soup for the soul way of answering these questions. And as long as you're not getting ready to, to die, I guess, you know, what's the harm? But on the other hand, when you really deal with the question of what happens the moment you die, you're going to want firm footing for that, and I want to give that to you from the Bible. Today, we're going to look at a king. His name is Manasseh, and Manasseh is different from all the other kings of Israel and Judah in this one respect. There are so many kings that started off good and turned bad at the end. Manasseh, to my knowledge, is the only one of the kings of Judah or Israel that started off bad and then everything turned around for him. And because of that, I want us to explore his life. Now, we're going to do it pretty quickly today, but we're going to look at it like a four-act play. And, and so each time as we look at these acts, we're going to get an aspect of a part of Manasseh's journey. And let's just start with this, this one simple four-word statement. Manasseh was a rebel. If you want to know who Manasseh was in the early part of his life, that one word, R-E-B-E-L, it, it sums up who Manasseh was. He was indeed a rebel. Two weeks ago, I brought you a sermon on a guy named Hezekiah. And I said, Hezekiah is my favorite of the kings. In fact, he was such a good king that the Bible says there was nobody like Hezekiah before and there was no one like Hezekiah after. 
He was 25 years old when he came to the throne, and he inherited a bad situation. And we talked about how that Hezekiah did the right thing in God's sight. He got rid of the idol worship. He got all the junk out of the culture, and he brought the people back to God. And we had talked about how that the, the, the people of Israel had split into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And Hezekiah was so burdened for his own people, even though there had been a disconnect and 200 years of bad feeling, Hezekiah reached out to his Jewish brothers and sisters and said, come on home, come on back, and come back to the temple and worship God. He just had a heart for God. Well, Hezekiah is Manasseh's daddy. I mean, you know, here's the thing. At New Spring, from time to time, I meet some of you, and you didn't grow up in a good situation. You didn't have a dad who modeled manhood. You didn't have a mom who modeled womanhood. You didn't have any spiritual influence in your life. And you've come to faith, but it's been a challenge because you just really didn't have any help when you were growing up. And sometimes we look at kids in that situation and we just say, wow, it's almost like they don't have a chance. But Manasseh is the very opposite because his daddy was a great man. He wasn't perfect, but he was a praying man. He was a, not only a great man, he was a great king. He was vulnerable. He was humble before God. Man, if you wanted to know how to be a godly man, all Manasseh had to do was look at his daddy. Remember we talked about in that sermon how that the Assyrians, that would be modern-day Iran, the Assyrians besieged Judah and, and said, hey, we're going to destroy you like we've destroyed all the other nations. And the king of Assyria sent him this intimidating letter, and Hezekiah went to the temple and spread it before God and said, God, look at what they wrote. He's that kind of guy. Well, somebody could say, well, maybe it was his mom. Maybe his mom was not a strong person. But no, that wouldn't be the case. Manasseh's mom was a godly woman. Her name means the one in whom God delights. She was a worshiper. And it wasn't just that he had a great dad and a great mom. He had a great pastor. My goodness, his pastor was Isaiah. When you open the Old Testament, you get to that 66-chapter book. Some people call it the fifth gospel. Isaiah was, I mean, I don't know what I would give to just hear one of Isaiah's sermons. I mean, Manasseh grew up with Isaiah, his pastor, coming to the palace and doing family Bible studies. So it wasn't like he... He had a reason to live the kind of life he did. I guess we could sum it up in this simple sentence. Messiah, uh, uh, Manasseh decided to do wrong, and that's the essence of rebellion. See, rebellion is knowing right and not doing it. If a person doesn't know right, he's not rebelling. He just doesn't know the right thing. And if he does wrong, he's not rebelling. He's just doing all he knows to do. But the very essence of rebellion says, I know what's right, but I'm not going to do what's right. Well, I've done some rebelling in my life. And as crazy as it is, I, I know why we rebel. I mean, there's a rush to rebelling. There's a buzz. I mean, when, you, when, you, when you're a kid and you say words you shouldn't say, there's a kind of buzz that comes from saying what you know is, is you know, looked at by adults in horror. I mean, there's a buzz that comes from breaking rules. There's a buzz like getting high or getting drunk. But people don't usually do smart things when they get high or drunk. And people don't do smart things when they rebel either. So why do we do it? Well, the answer comes back. We, we rebel because we want to individuate. 
We want to separate ourselves. I mean, I think when Manasseh was a kid growing up, he looked at his dad and said, oh, my dad's into that praying gig. And, and my mom, you know, she's like going to Bible studies and listening to Christian radio and all that kind of stuff. And I just don't know. If, I mean, old the preacher Isaiah comes by and he preaches some sermons. But that's for old people. I just don't, I'm going to go a different way. I'm going to individuate. And I think that's why we rebel. But, you know, here's the thing. And, and guys, if you don't get anything else, especially if you're under 25, I want you to get this one thing. Rebellion is a cheap substitute for true individualism. See, really having identity comes from thinking great thoughts. Real individuality comes from doing great things. Real individuality comes from solving people's problems and answering people's questions. Real individuality has to be earned. See, rebellion is just like, well, I don't want to pay the cost of being a true individual. I'm just going to break the rules and get my individuality that way. But we need to take a look at how God looks at rebellion you know, the way God looks at rebellion, and rebellion is the deification of self. It's the religion of me. And in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23, God says something amazing. God says, rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft. Well, witchcraft is trafficking in demon worship. So scripture says rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft, and stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. I don't counsel anymore, but back in the old days, I used to counsel. And I've, I've honestly had many people, usually guys, sitting in my office. I've seen them kind of cross their arms with a kind of smug and a you know, smug expression and a smirk. And I've had them say things like, well, I'm just kind of rebellious. I'm just kind of a rebel. You ever have somebody say something to you and you think, they don't realize what they just said to me? That's tantamount to saying, you know what, I'm just really stupid. That's what it means when a person says, I'm really a rebel. It's like, well, you just told me you know right and don't do it. I mean, that's like saying, boy, I'm just really stupid. But the Bible takes it a step further and says that when we rebel, it's just like worshiping demons. Why does it say that? Well, who are the demons? The demons are angels who rebelled against God. And when Satan rebelled against God, he led a third of the angels to rebel against him. So consequently, God is saying, you know, I know what you're doing. When a person rebels, they are trafficking in demons. Well, there's one more factoid I'll give you before we go to the second part of this message. And that is that Manasseh's name means forget. It's kind of interesting, isn't he? He came from this incredibly fine heritage, and yet his name means forget. And not forgetting in the way as in losing information or not being able to come up with a name that you're trying to think of. It's a forgetting that doesn't have the ability to connect the dots. I, it's interesting, as I was working on this message, I was watching, I can't remember, some documentary channel, Smithsonian channel or something, and I, I love documentaries, and I was watching a documentary on World War II, and it was especially situated in the last part of 1942 and 1943. We didn't know we were going to win the war back in those days, and it was the, it was the attempt to take islands in the Pacific to deal with Japan after Pearl Harbor. And unfortunately, we were learning things the hard way. And I was watching footage of young sailors and Marines that were hitting the beach and just being cut to ribbons by Japanese uh, machine gun placements. And I was watching wave after wave of those young Americans charge that beach right into the face of machine gun fire. I watched as their bodies were strewn on the beach like cordwood. 
And I thought, that's the problem with America. We can't connect the dots. It's not like we've forgotten World War II. I mean, we can answer technical questions on exams at the university. When we get asked in history about World War II, we can answer those questions. But can we connect the dots? I mean, people today talk about, oh, the freedom we have. But do we understand that that freedom was bought at a very high expense of young Americans who were willing to give their lives? Can we connect the dots? And the problem that Manasseh had was he couldn't connect the dots. I mean, he was king. He was full of himself, so full of himself that he didn't have to do the right thing, but he couldn't connect the dots. Well, the second part of today's talk, we'll just say, we'll call it a very dark pit. Because once Manasseh began to sink, he found that rebellion was like hell. There was no bottom. I think when he decided he was going to rebel against his dad and mom and the pastor, I think he was like, well, you know what? I don't really want to do what they do. I don't think he had any idea how deep he was going to sink. We'll see that in just a minute. But this isn't just a 2,700-year-old story. It's just, as, it's just as fresh as every day's news. Any of you happen to catch the story of Billy Knight? We're accustomed to high-profile suicides, but Billy Knight, the ex-UCLA basketball star, took his life this last week. And what made his story just amazing was that he filmed a video of himself right before he took his life. I want to share a part of it with you. He said, this is probably my last message on earth. I just want to say that I lived a life of sin. I lied. I cheated. I stole from many people. I was a taker. That's why my life ended up where it is now. Life's not a game. You can't play around with life. It's serious. I wasn't honest with a lot of people. Even my mom and my brother and my family members, I isolated myself from my family members. I isolated myself from my friends. And I want you to especially hear this next part. When I was younger, I was really religious. I was spiritual. I obeyed the laws of the universe, of the earth, the Ten Commandments, but when I got older, I thought I knew it all, and I veered off. I just don't feel like I belong here on earth, so my time is up. I couldn't obey the laws. I couldn't fit into society, so now I'll take my chances. Either I'll be in heaven, or I'll be in hell, or I'll be in limbo. I don't know, but I'll take that chance. A few hours later, they found his body in his car. I was taken by the fact that Billy Knight said, when I was younger, I did the right thing. But when I got older, I thought I knew better. And, and you hear from his story that he did, rebellion was like hell. It had no bottom. He had no idea how far he was going to sink. What I'm going to share with you now is I'm going to share with you what Manasseh did. And it's so awful, it's hard for us to grasp. Let's just read through this a little bit. This is 2 Kings 21, verse 3. He rebuilt the pagan shrines his father Hezekiah had destroyed. But that wasn't enough. He constructed new ones for Baal. Baal was the worship of masculinity, basically. He also bowed before all the powers of the heavens and worshiped them. That's astrology. He built these altars for all the powers of the heavens in both courtyards of the Lord's temple. Are you kidding me? This is the most sacred scene, the most sacred site of the Jewish world. And yet he built actually brothels for prostitution, both homosexual and heterosexual, he built brothels in the temple grounds. But that's not all. 
Verse 6, Manasseh also sacrificed his own son in the fire. We talked about that. That's the worship of Canaanite gods. They would burn their babies alive sometimes in the hope, hope for good luck. He practiced sorcery. That's worshiping demons and divination. He consulted with mediums and psychics. He did, that, he did much that was evil in the Lord's sight, arousing his anger. Now, verse 7. Manasseh even made a carved image of Asherah and set it up in the temple, the very place where the Lord had told David and his son Solomon, my name will be honored in this temple and in Jerusalem. Now, this is an adult environment, but even so, I'm going to be cautious in the way I describe this. But I owe it to you to tell you the truth here so that you'll know what happened. First, the temple was the place where God was worshipped. In fact, the temple was a forepicture of Jesus when he would come. The temple was, we could talk about it someday, but in the the middle of the temple there were two sacred rooms. Actually, it was basically one room, but there was a four-inch curtain called the veil that separated these two rooms. The first room was called uh, called the holy place, but the second chamber was called the most holy place. In that holy of holies or most holy place, there was one piece of furniture. There was a 42-inch cubic box called the Ark of the Covenant. There was a solid gold lid that is called the mercy seat, and there were two golden cherubim angels that were carved on the top of the mercy seat. Only one person could go into the holy of holies, and he could only go into it one day a year. Only the high priest could go in there, and there were 364 days in the calendar that he couldn't go in there. Only on the Day of Atonement. And he had to go in there and do exactly what God told him to do on the Day of Atonement. He would go in and sprinkle blood on the top of the mercy seat, and then he would come back and tell people that their sins had been atoned for for one more year. Now again, this is probably TMI, but it's kind of interesting. On the bottom of the robe of the high priest, there were little bells. And the idea was if he went into the most holy place and didn't do things right, God would kill him on the spot. Well, he couldn't send a bunch of people in there to get his body because they can't go in there. So what they would do is they had this long crook stick that they would reach under the curtain and grab a hold of the high priest's dead body and pull him out. Now, we're never told that any high priest ever died in there. I think God was just saying, don't don't mess this up. But this is how sacred and holy it was. Now, again, I'm going to be cautious in how I say this. What Manasseh did in this holy place was not just to go into the most holy place when he didn't belong there. He set up this long, tall structure that was symbolic of an erect male sex organ in the the temple. Well, it's an awful thing. And, and the people didn't listen. And Manasseh led them to do even more evil, the Bible says, in the pagan nations that the Lord had destroyed. So what happened? Did God just nuke them all? No, no. The Bible says God warned them. From time to time, someone will say to me, well, Mark, I, I like the God of the New Testament. I just don't like the God of the Old Testament. Well, they're the same God. And beyond that, God says, I am the Lord. I don't change. So The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Let me tell you what you're missing if if you think that. The New Testament only covers about 60 years. If you start with the ministry of Jesus to the end of the New Testament, it only covers 60 years. The Old Testament covers 4,000 years. 
And so a lot of times we read the Old Testament, it looks like these cultures are in deep sin and God just causes judgment to follow them. But what we don't understand when we don't read it carefully is that oftentimes there were many, many years that went from that first warning of God to his ultimate judgment. I mean, Noah preached for 120 years before God sent the flood. And in this situation, God had been telling Judah for well over 100 years that judgment was going to come. So God sent warnings. Well, what did he do? Did he ride it in the sky? Did he you know, speak from heaven? No. He sent people like you. People like you who stood up in this culture and said, this is the wrong thing to do. I don't believe in this. This is a wicked thing to do, to, to worship the stars and moon. We should worship the God who made the stars and the moon. It's, it's the wrong thing to do, to set up brothels in the temple that we worship God. It's, the wrong, it's definitely the wrong thing to do, to put up an Asherah pole in the temple. Well, what happened to these people who warned that they were doing wrong? Well, you can sort of see it developing even in America today. I mean, it hasn't gotten to this level, but in verse 16 says, Manasseh murdered many innocent people until Jerusalem was filled from one end to the other with innocent blood. This was in addition to all the other sin. Hey, some of you like to study the Bible. Have any of you like looked at Hebrews chapter 11? It's the chapter of faith in the Bible. And in Hebrews chapter 11, there's this list of persecutions that people suffered for believing God. It's the heroes. It's sort of the hall of fame of the Bible, the men and the women whose lives were transcendent. And you get to the end of that list of, of persecutions, and there's a line in there that says some were actually sawn in half. Well, according to Jewish history, Isaiah preached a lot of sermons in this time about what Manasseh and the people were doing wrong. And Manasseh got tired of the pastor who administered so much to his dad, had administered to him. And according to Jewish history, they took the old prophet, they laid him on two planks, and they took a saw and they cut him in half while he was alive. Rebels tend to shut out voices they don't want to hear, don't they? Guys, I'm in my... 42nd year of pastoring, my 33rd year here. I've talked to thousands and thousands of people through the years. And you know what? I've had people in my office, some of those people, it's like, well, I'm just a rebel. And you try to talk to them. And the weird thing about it is they know what they're doing is wrong. They know it's not going to end well, but they don't, they don't want to listen to a voice that tells them something that they don't want to hear. I remember talking to a fine lady, wonderful lady, married to a wonderful man, had great kids, but she got infatuated with a guy, and she was in my office saying, I'm going to leave my husband and go after this guy. And I think she told me, God said, it's God's will. God wants me to be happy. Oh, Lord, I've heard that one a few times. And you know, I'm telling her it's not going to end well. Well, unfortunately, she goes out after But about a year later, she came back, and, and, and she was getting right with God. And she said, I... You know, I remember that day when you told me I couldn't do this, and she said, I was so angry at you, I could have bitten a nail in half. Well, I've seen that story play out a hundred times with men and women. Why, 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 when we rebel, do we shut out voices that we don't want to hear? It's like truth is going to be different for me. Math is not going to be math for me. God is not going to be God for me. Truth is not going to be truth for me. Yeah, if somebody else did what I'm doing, they would get in trouble for it, but I'm going to, I'm going to get by with it somehow. Well, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, my personality is such that I can be rebellious at times. 
And when I find myself getting a little rebellious, I tell myself a story. I know I've told it to you many times, but I don't want you to ever forget this story because each of us, when we start to get rebellious, we need to think about this story. The story is of a captain who was piloting a ship on a dark night, and he saw the approaching light of another ship headed right for his ship. And angrily, he thought, why is this other ship in my path? So he had his radio engineer send a message that said to the other ship, alter your course 10 degrees to the south. But to his amazement and anger, a message came back and said, alter your course 10 degrees to the north. Well, that made him mad. He's thinking about his rank. He sent back another message that said, alter your course 10 degrees to the south. I am a captain. <laughs> the response came back, alter your course 10 degrees to the north. I am seaman third class. Captain radioed another message, alter your course 10 degrees to the south. I am a battleship. The response came back, alter your course 10 degrees to the north. I am a lighthouse. <laughs> Could I say to anyone who is rebelling today, the lighthouse isn't going to move. Truth is going to be truth for you, just like it's truth for me. But for some reason, and I, and I can be this way myself, when we get rebellious, it's like we double down, and it's like, well, I'm not going to listen. And I, I preached a message a couple years ago called Monkey Trap. I don't know if anybody remembers the message or not, but in a Monkey Trap, I, I shared with you how that in Asia and Africa, there's a common way of trapping monkeys. And people eat them in the, over there. And so one of the ways they trap, they, they trap monkeys is that they'll make a little cylindrical vase that's pretty narrow, little, maybe a little bit fluted at the top. And they'll tie it with a cord or a rope to a tree trunk or a stump. And they'll put something in that vase that would attract a monkey. Something shiny to get its attention. Maybe a piece of food. Maybe a little bit of a banana. And the monkey will come along and he'll slide his hand into that vase and grab whatever it is that he wants. Now at any moment that monkey could release what he's gotten his hand on and pull his hand right out. But he won't do it because he doesn't want to let go of it. And he'll stand right there until they come along and harvest him. And we can say, well, that's silly, but I'll tell you what, a monkey's just doing what his instinct tells him to do. We are daughters and sons of God, and sometimes we do the same thing. I know people that will hold on to a relationship that they know is toxic. And everybody speaks into their lives and saying, you know what, he's not good for you. Do you notice he doesn't treat you well? Do you know? I mean, and it's like, well, he doesn't hit me very often. And you stay right there until life comes along. And tragedy harvests you. Well, that's what happened to Manasseh. And maybe now we'll move to the third part of the story, which is time to pay. In 2 Chronicles 33, the Bible tells us what happened to Manasseh. Manasseh wouldn't listen to God. So the Lord spoke, you know, spoke to them and they ignored his warning. So the Lord sent commanders of the Assyrian armies and they took Manasseh prisoner. Look at this. They put a ring through his nose and bound him in bronze chains and led him away to Babylon. Well, Manasseh won't listen to God, so God sends, like I say, this is modern-day Iran. He sends the Assyrians, and they come and they arrest Manasseh, and they say to Manasseh, hey, buddy, we got some jewelry for you. And they take an awl, and they drive it all the way through his nose, and they take a brass ring, and they run it through his nose. They attach it to a chain, and then they start. And I assure you, Manasseh's going... He's going where they pull him. You have a ring through your nose. You don't pull back against that. Strange 
how rebellion goes from I can do anything I want to do to I'm totally controlled. Our prisons in America are filled with hundreds of thousands of men and women who said, I'm going to do what I want to do. And their mamas told them that wasn't the thing to do. And their dads told them that wasn't the thing to do. And the friends said, that's not the thing to do. But it's like, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I can do anything I want to do. But now they're behind bars and they're totally controlled and they can't do anything they want to do. For all the hundreds of thousands who are in prisons, there are hundreds of millions more who are in prisons without bars. I can take a hit of meth and, you know, it's just party, but now you're in a prison. You thought you could do anything you want to do, but now it's controlling you. When you were young, anger just felt good, but now it's got control of you. Well, I want to close on a good note here. I want to go to the fourth part of our story, and that is the man whose name means forget begins to remember in 2 Chronicles verse 33 and verse 12, the Bible says, But while in deep distress, Manasseh sought the Lord his God and sincerely humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. Well, I, I'm, I'm told by historians that what the Ninevites did in Assyria to kings they captured was horrific. I could not even begin to tell you some of the things that the Ninevites did to captured kings and the way they kept them, and what they did to them, and how they abused their bodies. So now, here is Manasseh, and he's sitting in a prison in Nineveh, and the Bible says in deep distress, Manasseh begins to connect the dots for the first time, and he's looking at his dad's life, and he's looking at his life, and he's saying to himself, I am here because I rebelled, and he turns to God and humbles himself before God, This part of the message is intensely personal. As I shared with you before, I don't have any pastels in my personality. And rebellion is something that I've had to fight from time to time in my life. And I went through a season in my life where I got rebellious to where God, it's been less than a decade ago. <laughs> it, it, you know, if you looked at my life, you would have said, well, I don't think Mark's doing anything wrong. But you know what? Sometimes an attitude can take you pretty low. And I started developing a bad attitude. And a crust began to form over my heart. Now, here's the thing. When I talk about pain coming into our lives as a res response to doing something wrong before God, there's a feeling in modern America that says something like this. I don't think God punishes people. I don't think God... I don't think God reacts in a way that brings pain when we do wrong. I've had people tell me that. I just don't, I don't believe my God would do that. Well, first off, none of us has a God. The reason why we want to feel that God doesn't allow negative circumstances, we don't want to think that he allows negative circumstances. But I do want to make a point. I, I think that a lot of times people misunderstand. The idea is that God is this cosmic killjoy up in the sky just with a hammer waiting to bash us if we get out of line. And what I'm about to share with you now is scripture that God brought to me that helped me repent when I developed a bad attitude. This is what God showed me. And I hope that you'll receive it today. In Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, God said, I will return to my place until they admit their guilt and turn to me. For as soon as trouble comes, they will earnestly search for me. 
See, the thing that God is saying here, and this is what happened with Manasseh, and this is what God was trying to teach me. God is like, if you don't want me to be in your life, I will just step out of the room. See, you and I have no idea how much God is protecting us right now. You know what it's like to have a good day? I mean, just, just a normal day. Things are okay. You don't feel particularly bad. You just sort of get through the day without any crisis. What you and I don't understand is in a broken world with flawed people of which we are one and flawed people around us, when you have a basically good day, that's an anomaly. See, normalcy in a broken world is a bad day. When you have a good day, you've, you've just had something out of the norm. And so what we don't understand is that daily God is protecting us. God's, God has his angels around us. I mean, here's the thing. I'm guessing a lot of you know what I'm talking about. There was a moment where if you'd gone into an intersection a split second later, you would have been killed, but you didn't. Something may have delayed you that you got upset with. And the next thing you know, it's like, oh, whew, I'm, glad, I'm glad I got delayed or I'd have been right in that intersection right at that moment. Well, that's God's angels. I remember back in 2006. I don't know why I did it. I do crazy things sometimes. I bought a Scion TC. It looked like it needed me. <laughs> What's an old man doing in a Scion TC? I was driving back from speaking engagement in, in Texas and driving back early in the morning and I remember there was just this front that came through and I'm, I'm going up the turnpike out here south of Wichita at, at 75 miles an hour, and all of a sudden this gust of wind came. I felt it hit my car, and all of a sudden I felt the back wheels of my car turn loose. And the next thing I know, I'm going up the turnpike backward at 75 miles an hour. First thought in my mind is I'm going to hit something really hard, and this is probably it. I mean, I, it was amazing how far I went up straight backwards. I had a long time to think about it. And all of a sudden, my car just eased over into the concrete median and gradually friction slowed my car down, didn't even fire the airbags. And then I looked down, and, you know, I'm worried about, you know, at that moment, traffic. And I looked, and it was like the traffic was held back a quarter mile. And at that point, there were all kinds of cars and tractor-trailer trucks. I had time to unbuckle my seatbelt and just walk across the turnpike, and I stood there, and I knew at that moment that God had sent his angels to protect me. I've thanked God for that so many times in the last 12 years. Do you understand what I'm saying? God is like, okay, it, Mark, if you want to rebel, I mean, I'm protecting you. If God, I mean, Satan said to God in Job chapter one, you won't let me get to Job. You put a fence around him. And we don't realize how much God is protecting us, but God is like, well, Mark, if you don't want me in your life, I guess I'll just step out of the room and you can... Take a crack at it on your own. Read that one more time with me. God said, I will return to my place until they admit their guilt and turn to me, for as soon as trouble comes, they will earnestly search for me. Well, eight years ago, when I got a bad attitude toward God, God was letting pain come into my life. And I read that verse, and I thought, that's exactly what's going on with me. And trouble came, and I admitted my guilt, and I came back to God. Well, look at, look at this. The Bible says, and when he prayed, Manasseh, and when he prayed, the Lord listened to him and was moved by his request. So the Lord brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh finally realized that the Lord alone is God. Hey, I'm glad I'm not God, because if I'm God and Manasseh's down there getting jailhouse religion 
And he starts praying. I'm like, are you kidding me? Man, you turned the temple of God into a place of prostitution. You put that Asherah pole up there in the Holy of Holies. And on top of that, you killed Isaiah. What do you mean, forgive you? I'm glad I'm not God. Because the Bible says that God forgave him. Look at verse 15. Manasseh removed the foreign gods and the idol from the Lord's temple. He tore down all the altars he had built on the hill where the temple stood and the altars that were in Jerusalem. And he dumped them outside the city. Then he restored the altar of God and sacrificed peace offerings and thanksgiving offerings on it. He also encouraged the people of Judah to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Well, let's end this where we started. Can God forgive me? Can he forgive you? You know, I'm glad there's this story in the Bible because there's not a person here who's been as wicked as Manasseh. And if God can forgive Manasseh, he can forgive you. I want to leave you as I close today with my favorite scriptures on repentance. We're all sinners and we're all going to get away from God. And if you want to come home, I want to give you my favorite verses in the Bible. And again, this is what God taught me. And I'm not teaching you something that I just read in the Bible. I'm teaching you scriptures that when I need to come back to God, this is what I read. God says, this is what the Lord says. Turn to me now while there's time. God never invites you to repent tomorrow. There's never... Never any place in the Bible where the Bible says, look, when you get tired of making your decisions, come on back to me then. God never says come tomorrow. It's always today. I talk to people sometimes and they'll say, well, you know what? I know this is not a healthy relationship and shouldn't be in it. And this guy's not good for me or this gal's not good for me. And, and you know, it's dragging me down, but I'm just going to see where it goes. And if it doesn't work out, then I'll just come back and do what God wants me to do. Or, or you know what? We're living together, but we're going to save our money until we can have a big wedding. Or this is not wise, it's not healthy, but I need to do this to make a living. None of that. The Bible says, turn to me now while there's time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief. The Jewish people used to tear their robes as a sign of distress. God says, don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is, this is my favorite line, he is eager to relent and not punish in other words, when we're doing wrong and God is like, well, I'm going to have to bring pain into his life. God is not up there saying, wow, I get to bring pain because he's rebelling. God is eager to pull back. And then verse 14, who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. Now, listen, this is, this is how I see this. And again, this has been personal with me. You know, God is looking up down from heaven. It's like, you know, Mark just won't get it. He's stubborn. He keeps insisting. You know what? I'm going to just have to send pain into his life. He's got the angels ready. I mean, here they are ready to dump a load of pain in my life. And here they are getting ready to leave. And all of a sudden, God said, wait, 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 wait. Hold, hold up. I, I think he's starting to get it. And the Bible says instead of sending pain, he turns around and sends a blessing. God's like, well, you know what? He's getting it now, so I'm going to send him a blessing. And then God says, perhaps you'll be able to offer grain and wine to the Lord as your God, to your God as before. That's God saying, I'm going to give you a new season. 
if I'm talking to anyone, South Auditorium, North Auditorium, on television or watching online, and you're going through a season of rebellion, come home. Come back to God. This is not a self-help thing. American Christianity has fallen in love with self-help. And it's got a legit, it's got a legit application. We teach things here at New Spring that you can do to help yourself have a better life. But I'm not talking about it now. This is something that you're going to have to have God do in your life. If you've sinned against God, and all of us have, but especially if you've gone through a protracted period of rebellion, of doing your own thing, it's not something that you have to fix yourself. And I tell you that because if you feel like you have to fix yourself, this will seem like an impossible hill. But this is what you, you bring to God, and you say, God, I can't fix myself. This isn't something I can do. I'm coming to you as a sinner asking for your help and forgiveness. I have a story for anyone who's insisting on doing this yourself. Stephen told me this story. He was telling me about a, a kid who was just finishing his freshman year of college, and he wanted to make some money that summer, so he got a job on a road construction crew. And this kid didn't know anything about road construction. He found himself working with guys who had been in road construction for 10, 20, 30 years. But the kid was a smart aleck, and he kept sprouting off about how, how good he was and how smart he was, and especially how strong, how buffed, how ripped he was. And he was working with this old guy who clearly was an older guy. He'd been doing road construction for 35, 40 years, and he kept telling the old man that, you know, this kid could do things that the old man couldn't do. And finally, the old man got tired of it, and he said to the kid, well, hey, son, I'll bet you next week's paycheck that I can do something that you can't do. He said, I'll bet you next week's pay I can wheel something in this wheelbarrow over there to that building that you can't wheel back. Oh, the kid said, that's too easy. Man, old oh man, I can, I can push anything in a wheelbarrow that you can push. Yeah, I'll take your bet. The old man said, all right, son, get in the wheelbarrow. See, when we tell God we don't need him, God says, all right, get in the wheelbarrow. You need God. You need God. Stop trying to do it by yourself. It's a missionary in the Philippines. And uh, been there many years. And in the town where he, he worked and ministered, there was a, a silversmith school. Some of the greatest silversmiths in the world taught young men and women the craft of silversmithing. And like 25 years before this missionary had gone to the silversmith school and he had bought a silver money clip and it was magnificent. It was solid silver and there was this beautiful silver medallion design on it that made the clip really valuable. And he, he kept it for 24, 25 years. But one day he was putting some bills in his money clip and it broke, I guess, just years of metal fatigue. And silver's not the hardest metal. So he took the pieces of that broken silver money clip back to the silversmith school. And a guy about his age came out from behind the counter and said, what can I do? And he handed him the pieces of the silver clip, money clip. 
And the moment that the Smith looked at that money clip, the pieces, he started smiling. And he said, I recognize this. He said, you know what? I, dream, I remember when I dreamed this up. And you know what? I designed this, and I personally made every one of these that we sold. This is really cool. And the missionary said, well, can you fix it? And the man said, I dreamed this up. I designed it. I made it. Of course I can fix it. You and I come to God with our lives, and they're broken. And we've done things and said things and lived in ways, and we have habits and problems in our lives that we can't fix. And when we get tired of running from God, we come to him and we say, God, can you do anything with me? And he says, I dreamed you up. I designed you. I made you. Of course I can fix you. If you got a breath, you got a prayer. If you have a pulse, you have a chance. You look at this book and you find me one place where a person came in honest repentance and God wouldn't forgive them. I can't find a place. I've lived in this book. I've been a preacher of this book for over 40 years and I can't find a place where a woman or a man, regardless of what they did, came to God and sincerely and humbly asked for forgiveness and God said, no, you've done too much. You've gone too far. I can't find a single place wherever God turns somebody down. Can God forgive me? The answer is yes. The question is not, can God forgive you? The question is, will you come? Will you come to him? Will you get over the stubbornness and quit doubling down and quit not listening to the people that tell you the truth and come like you are and he will forgive you? Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you're here today and you say, Mark, I want to know that I'm forgiven. I want to know that so much. I want to know that I'm forgiven. Well, I'm going to do something. I'm going to lead you in a prayer because the Bible says whoever calls will be saved. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer and I'm going to do it slowly line by line. And you can hear it and you can decide if you want to repeat it and say it to God. Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner. I am broken. But I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe he came back to life. I may not understand it all, but I choose to believe. Would you forgive me? Would you save me? Would you make me your child? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you just hang with me just one more split second. If you just pray with me, I have a gift I want to give you. It's a gift bag. It's a New Spring Bible, a little book I wrote that answers a lot of questions about the decision you just made, a DVD and some other cool stuff. Any info center, if you're in South or North Auditorium, either one, any info center, all you got to do is go back and say, I pray with Mark, and they will not hassle you or stalk you or try to engage you if you don't wish to be. But if you just say, I pray with Mark, they will give you this. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next weekend. God bless.